I'm reading 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 16. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the woman sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry at this saying. This pleased him, he said. They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David through the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Thank you, Miranda. Let's pray and... As we pray, let's pray right now also for Carol Burgess, who I understand just left because she received word her father passed away. Father, your word is good for every part of life. You sustain us by it. So I pray that you would be sustaining Carol right now by your word and the rest of her family. Comfort her. um, Remind her of the great hopes and treasures that she has in Christ. I don't know if her father was believing, but may there be hope. I thank you that as your sons and daughters, you give us unfading unshakable, untakeable hope that not even death can steal from us. Comfort her now, I pray. And speak to us as we go before your word. Speak through me. Prevent these words from being my own, but may they be yours. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, Saul is Israel's first king. In many ways, Saul 
He really did want to be a good king. He wanted to honor God. He offered sacrifices. He consulted with God's prophet Samuel. He upheld Israel's traditions. Saul's intentions were really good. In fact, he he wasn't like all of those other kings who came later, who led Israel into the abominable practices of idolatry, sacrificing their own children. Saul wasn't like those evil, wicked kings of Israel. No, he really tried. But I think we've all learned in our own lives that good intentions accomplish nothing. Though his intentions did seem to be good, Saul's intentions seemed to be good, his convictions were weak, and he repeatedly followed popular opinion rather than the voice of God. And he was led astray by the opinion of people, and with his weak conviction came a fearful heart. And more often than not, he was found hiding from difficulties, which we saw last week as he was hiding in his tent when Goliath came out. Saul was proud, and he was insecure, and he was rash, as we will see this week. He was jealous. This combination of attributes makes for a very volatile king, a volatile person. When that person is the king, watch out. Now, add to this the knowledge that the Lord had rejected him, Saul. This comes from... 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel said to Saul, you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Those will be hard words to hear. This is a pathetic scene. After making an unlawful sacrifice, God, through the voice of Samuel, rebukes Saul and he rejects his throne. And as Samuel turns to walk away, as we just read, Samuel turns to walk away, Saul basically throws himself on the ground and he's grasping at Samuel, grasping at his robe. And he tears it. With such pathetic, unkingly display, Samuel effectively says to Saul, God has given the kingdom to someone better than you. I think this whole scenario should, it made me ask, maybe it's made you wonder, why doesn't God just begin with David? Why does he establish a kingship, a kingdom, with a man like Saul. Well, I believe that God is showing Israel what a true king looks like by starting with a contrast. So imagine if we lived in a world that was constantly filled with Canadian smoke. You you would never in your entire life have seen a clear day. If you lived in this world, you could do a lot of activities, but breathing would be stress. Your life expectancy would certainly be lowered. Your sight would always be limited by this haze, and the apocalyptic hue of it would change your perception of reality. There's a world that you would live in, and you would, you would think that this world you live in is supposed to smell like smoke. 
And then imagine, after all those years of living in this world, one day, suddenly, the smoke lifts. Suddenly, the haze parts, and for the first time in your whole life, you really see what the world is supposed to be like. It's a delight to breathe now. You had no idea that it could be this enjoyable just to draw breath. It's so clear, it's so fresh, and you would be absolutely dazzled and amazed and overjoyed at this new reality. But that reality, that's how it's supposed to be. That's what's normal, right? That's how God intended it. And yet, even after only a few days of our Canadian smoke, can you not appreciate how awesome normal is? Where we're almost normal, I guess. Imagine if that was your entire life. Now, God is doing something similar, I think, with David and Saul. Saul is the haze. David is the clarity. Under Saul, you could get by, but your life would certainly be shortened. Under David, there is victory and there is joy and life would be abundant. It's a contrast that we began to see with the emergence of Goliath, and it becomes even more significant in today's passage. But this contrast, it also reveals a giant problem, and it unhinges Israel's volatile king. So today we're going to see that Jonathan and Saul have two very different relationships to David. And those relationships that they have to David have implications for us. When Miranda began reading chapter 18, you could probably see that eight, chapter 18, verse 1, begins immediately after the events of chapter 17. By the power of God, David has just slain this gigantic Philistine. And wanting to learn more about this remarkable teenager, Saul has David brought into his tent. He wants to learn more about him. And it is right here in his father's tent, in that moment of discourse, that Jonathan first meets David. Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So if you don't already know, Jonathan is the son of Saul, the eldest son of Saul. And already... In previous chapters in 1 Samuel, Jonathan is an accomplished warrior. He's a very successful commander in Israel's army, and he displays a lot more wisdom and a lot more courage than his father. He's a very capable man. Now here I'm thinking that David is likely around the age of 16 or 17. Uh, Jonathan is likely in his early to mid-20s, though for sure that's speculation. But Jonathan has certainly... You know, these events have just happened right before his eyes with Goliath. He has certainly heard the passionate, God-centered speeches recently delivered by David. He has been moved by them. And then he has seen David actually go out there, this kid with a sling, go out there and slay the giant. And it appears that Jonathan is immediately able to recognize something significant and noble and virtuous in David. Something that doesn't seem to exist anywhere else in all of Israel. And as verse 1 says, Jonathan's soul was immediately knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved David. Now in 2023, you can imagine how that verse gets twisted. 
certain so-called churches foist their homosexual affection, foist homosexual affection upon Jonathan and David and make out of this relationship what it is not, what couldn't be further from the truth. Deceived people are reading into the text what they want to get out of it, and all that they get out of it is only more deception. And Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride comes before destruction. The love of Jonathan and David is a love between friends. As 1 Samuel progresses, we're going to see this steadfast brotherhood develop between Jonathan and David. And they will fight together. They will worship together. They will make incredible sacrifices for one another. Risk their lives for one another. Additionally, the, the love between Jonathan and David is it's very deep. It's, it's much deeper than ordinary friendship. Many commentators are quick to point out that there is this linguistic context surrounding the Hebrew word for love that has a political overtone. When verse 1 says that Jonathan loved David, it's, it's, it is about friendship, but it implies that he loved what David represented. He loved the reform and the passion and the theological commitment that drove David. He loved what David was about. Jonathan loved how these elements might influence the throne, might influence potentially all of Israel. So in, in short, Jonathan loved David, and he loved David's politics. And it's important not to divorce politics and theology in this context. They lived in a theocracy. We're going to see a little bit more evidence for this political facet of Jonathan's, Jonathan's love for David as we continue through this text. But Jonathan and David hold common ideals. They are united in purpose. And though David clearly is the, the leader in this relationship, they both want Israel to flourish in covenant faithfulness unto Yahweh. That's what they're beating, their hearts beat together with. So these men understand one another in a powerful and in a unique way, and the effect of their friendship will leave a lasting impression upon Israel. I mean, here we are, thousands and thousands of years later, talking about their friendship. That's an impression. There may be no better example in the Bible of love between friends, between brothers. Do you want a friend like that? I want a friend like this. I'm not saying I don't have them, but I, I want this kind of friendship in my life. I want a brother that I know I can go into the trenches with, who we can sh shoulder burdens together, who I am proud to stand beside, who our hearts are unified with. I want a friend like this. Do you? Do you have a friend like that? They are so rare. Maybe one in a lifetime, two, maybe. What a blessing it is. If you find that kind of relationship, that kind of friendship, you better treasure it. It is not always going to be easy, so you have to fight for it. And you see David, Jonathan, fighting for each other a lot through incredible adversity that would, that would divide most relationships. Look at verse 2. And Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So again, it's the same day as Goliath was killed. 
And initially, it looks like Saul loves David too. He wants him to stick around. He's not even going to let him go home. It's a funny kind of love. He says that he wanted, he wanted David so much that he's going to keep him. Now, this isn't love. This is Saul's M.O. 1 Samuel 14, 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Saul was a collector. A collector of strong and valiant men. And so David was just another one of of, of these weapons in his war chest. Saul is a narcissist, and he sees people only as useful tools to himself. He sees David only as a useful tool to himself. He wants to use David. Like the, all the other strong and valiant men that he had been collecting. Remember, Saul does not know during all of this who God has chosen to be Israel's next king. He knows there's somebody out there, but he doesn't know who it is. And David had been anointed in secret. We saw that in chapter 16. All Saul knows is that God has promised to replace him with someone who is better than him. An ironic twist, Saul has no idea that he had just invited that better man into his own court. Jonathan doesn't know this either. At least not initially. So right from the beginning, you can see that Jonathan and David have very different relationships, or Jonathan and Saul have very different relationships to David. Seeing another contrast emerging. Verse 3, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So for the second time, We are told that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. This is reinforcing this. He loves him so much, especially everything that David represents theologically and politically, that he makes a covenant with David. And Scripture doesn't tell us what this covenant is. It doesn't give us the particulars of the covenant. But verse 4 seems to indicate the nature of this covenant. So remember... Back a chapter, David had just killed the Philistine champion, Goliath, without any armor, without any sword. David declared that he needed no sword, that he needed no armor, not because of his own fighting prowess, but because of the power of the Lord. As David himself said, the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He was taking up Israel's call. Whereby trusting in God, God would defeat the foe. God would be their weapon and protection. And he proved it. With Goliath. Like no one else had. David needed no armor. Yet here's Jonathan. Immediately after these events. Making covenant with David. Giving David his personal armor. His sword. His robe. his robe. What did Saul do when he heard that the Lord had rejected him? He fell on the the ground and he grabbed at Samuel. 
And Saul's pathetic grasp, it's like he's trying to hold on to the kingdom. He's trying to not let it slip out of his hands. And what does he get? A torn robe. A kingdom torn away from him. As if a robe is symbolic of a kingdom. And in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, that does seem to be the case. Now here's Jonathan taking off his own robe and he's giving it to David. What do you think that might symbolize? Jonathan's the rightful heir to the throne. He's the oldest son of Saul. The, the, the kingdom is his once Saul has passed, if that course were to continue. And he's a far more capable, capable leader than his father. He certainly would have been a better king than Saul, it would seem. But he takes off his robe and he gives it to David. He's saying... What is rightfully mine, it's yours, David. He wants to give it to David. He wants David to have the kingdom. I believe that's the nature of the covenant with David. He recognizes that David is God's man. It's been very powerfully demonstrated just before. He recognizes that David is a better man than his father, a better man than himself. And he pledges his loyalty to David, the son of Jesse, the anointed king of Israel. I wonder if David does tell him that he's been secretly anointed by Samuel. Either way, Jonathan recognizes David's anointing. And and I don't mean the anointing of oil. I mean the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that rested upon him from the day he was anointed with oil forward. Jonathan sees that anointing. And indeed, the Spirit was with David, for success followed him everywhere that he went. Look at this in verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Verse 5 is a verse that fast-forwards through time. We don't know how much time, but it's enough time for Saul to recognize that David wasn't only able to handle himself in battle, but he can handle command. He could wheel, wheel it. Being a military commander, it becomes clear to everyone in Israel. See how it says, all the people? David's fame is growing rapidly. Everyone's happy with David. Even Saul is happy with David at this point, but, but the stage has now been set for the volatility of an insecure king. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine or Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can, be, what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So a lot of time has passed. It seems that David has become the second most famous person in Israel by this point. Commander of 
Israel's armies, and he's only surpassed by the fame of Saul himself. Once again, you know, they were out battling with the Philistines. They were successful in battle, and upon Saul's return, David is with him, victorious. The women of Israel sing this song of victory. Saul has struck down his thousands. David is ten thousands. Now, these women would not be very wise if they were singing a song like it sounds to us. Like they're making David sound better. That would be an unwise thing to do with a king like Saul. In ancient Israelite culture, we see that words for thousand and ten thousand can simply mean very many. So the song could have been more intended to sound like this. Saul has struck down his myriads and David his multitudes. So that they're putting Saul and David on equal footing. Of course, it could be they're making David sound better. But it's true. For the first time since Joshua, the enemies of Israel are being pushed back. And the land of of Israel, the territory they hold, is now expanding. The people are rejoicing. Saul, too, he should have been basking in these incredible blessings from the Lord. This is God at work. Saul should have been rejoicing. But he sees people elevating David as his equal or lifting David above him. And in a time for joy, Saul is boiling inside. He's brooding with jealousy. Look very carefully at the wording of verse 8. Saul thinks to himself, what more can he have but the kingdom? He doesn't even realize the prophetic nature of those words. And then then verse 8 says, Saul eyed David from that day on. Verse 9. So Saul's beginning to suspect. He's beginning to understand. David might be the man that God thinks is better than him. Perhaps this Bethlehemite is the next king. And it's tragic that Saul begins to perceive the future through the lens of jealousy. He's rightly thinking, rather he has a right understanding tainted with wrong thinking, a wrong heart, and he begins to project himself on to David, and he thinks that David wants to take the throne, that David is an ambitious threat. But what Saul entirely fails to understand is that David is not ambitious, he's anointed, he's chosen, he's elected. Yahweh is at work, and to resist David and to be suspicious of him is to fear and fight with the will of God. And Saul is blind to this, whereas Jonathan can see it. You might think to yourself, man, I'm glad I'm not like Saul, that I'm more like Jonathan. Saul, I mean, that, what a terrible way to be and to think and to, to be so wrong. It's obvious when the contrast is obvious. But it is very hard to see through the haze of your everyday. I have some questions. 
Have you ever compared yourself to somebody else and then felt the prick of jealousy? Have you ever wondered if someone was trying to wrestle something out of your control, maybe something you started or something you usually operate? And have you battled for control, even control of your own life? And anxiety is a battle for control. Have you suspiciously looked upon others, perhaps with a judgmental eye? Have you ever projected your insecurities and your failures on other people? I bet you have. I have. None of these things are far from Saul. None of us are far from Saul. And all that suspicion, all that jealousy, it's just another sign of Saul's failure. And so he's going to continue to pathetically grasp at the royal robe, even if it's been taken away and given to somebody who's better than him, given to David, just as the Holy Spirit had been taken away from Saul and now has been given to David. And instead, God gives Saul a spirit of another sort. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. He was, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. <laughs> you, can't, you can't avoid all of the psychological diagnoses of Saul as you read in commentaries and various pieces of literature. Narcissistic, severely depressed, bipolar, various other options and combinations. Clearly this man was suffering from a psychological illness. But this is not merely a clinical matter. This is a spiritual matter. The text unambiguously unashamedly says that Saul's internal torment was because of a harmful spirit sent from the Lord. How about that for a challenging passage? If that is not a statement of God's sovereignty, then there is nothing else that is. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the inner workings of God's sovereign will, nor the activities and intentions of spiritual beings, because that, that sermon series upon themselves, that's a deep, deep rabbit hole. But know this, Yahweh is the first cause of all things. Everything begins in Yahweh. Above everything else, that's what that verse is trying to communicate. God gives and God takes away. He builds up and he tears down and God himself has spoken. It shall come to pass that as I have watched over Israel to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. When God gives, it's because he is working all things together for those who love him. And when God takes, it's because he is working all things together for those who love him. And all this according to his glorious purposes. Because he sees what you cannot see. And what may appear harmful today might be glorious in your future. Saul has rejected the word of the Lord. 
And so the Lord has rejected Saul. And that rejection is complete as Saul descends into spiritual, psychological, and eventually physical collapse. Saul's collapse is his own doing, just as it is God who sent Saul into collapse. But Saul's afflictions are Israel's revelations, like a thick and choking haze that makes clear blue skies an absolute wonder. Back in chapter 16, which is a, a passage I didn't preach on, we read that Saul was regularly, regularly afflicted by this harmful spirit. It would, it would happen often, and his moods became so dark that his servants scoured Israel, looking for somebody who could help Saul, who could lighten these moods and bring some relief to Saul. And eventually, after searching, they find a skilled musician. A musician that loved to, think, to, to sing about the things of God. For Samuel 16, 23. Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. How good it is to see that David wards off these harmful spirits. David, this prefiguring of Jesus Christ. Well, the day after Saul's jealous suspicions are arise, when they return from battling the Philistines and they hear that song sung, the day after that happens, Saul's jealous suspicions are aroused against David, this evil coming from his own heart, and then God punishes him with an evil spirit. So Saul's own heart is churning in its own wickedness, and God sends this evil spirit as a punishment for that. And it seems that in the moment the spirit afflicts Saul, Saul's mind is consumed now with suspicion and jealousy. And he's raving about the house. Who knows what that looks like? He becomes convinced now that David is not his friend. They were just fighting in battle moments before, it would seem. Now he's convinced David is not his friend. He's a dangerous enemy. More dangerous than the Philistines? And he's driven to a completely irrational kill-or-be-killed mentality. Must kill this enemy in his house. Notice verse 11. It is not the evil spirit, but Saul's own thinking that turns murderous. The wording is very careful. He thought, Saul thought, I will pin David to the wall. So Saul is entirely responsible for the state of his heart and the actions that follow, and this harmful spirit was a punishment that came upon Saul, exacerbated this problem. It's like a foretaste of hell. And he tries to kill David twice, throwing the spear at him twice, and twice he fails, David evading him. Again, he is not recognizing that he isn't battling with David. He's battling with Yahweh. Saul can't see this. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him commander of 10,000, of, of a thousand, sorry. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. 
And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Saul's not thinking rationally at all here. Saul perceives David to be too great a threat to have in his own home, so he kicks him out. He sends David out to the front lines, and he gives him command over thousands, which is the largest unit, military unit in the Israelite army. He sends him out to do that, and I imagine that he's hoping David is killed. Perhaps a foreshadowing of what David would later do to Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Anyway, that makes for three attempts on David's life. But Saul's plan backfires. Because David is so successful, because the Lord is with him, that any Israelite with a brain knows that this man is God's man. Rescuer, this deliverer, this man of God. And conversely, Saul is driven only into greater fear, greater suspicion, greater jealousy. This fearful awe is not like a good fearful awe you're supposed to have of God. It's it's a terror thing. He's afraid of David. He's afraid what David means. David's a threat to his control. Conversely, Jonathan looked upon David with love, with hope, and he saw in David a better future. As I've now already said in this sermon and have established in the sermon series, David prefigures Jesus. Every human being has a choice to approach Jesus in one of two ways. The way of Saul or the way of Jonathan. People probably aren't going to say that they view Jesus with suspicion. How many are willing to give the kingdom of their lives over to Jesus? And how many are willing to surrender control to the man that is better than them? Aren't they grasping? Aren't so many, are you, grasping to keep control? Jesus is God's appointed man. He is the anointed king. To not accept this is to grasp at things that are already torn away from you. It were never yours to hold on to. And I plead with you, Before everything is eternally stripped away, give your trust, give your loyalty to Jesus. Enter into covenant relationship with him like Jonathan. Come to Jesus like Jonathan and recognize that he is indeed a better man than you. He lived a life perfectly that you could never do. And he turned aside the wrath of God that you deserve. Jesus did this for you. And now through loyal faith, through covenanting, covenantal relationship with him, we become the friends of the king. Listen to this. Listen to the words that the king has spoken to us. Greater love has no one than this. As someone laid down his life for his friends, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love 
one another. What stunning, life-changing reality to consider that the king of the universe is your friend. He is the friend that you have been longing for. He is the friend that you can go into the trenches with, and he is the friend that your heart can be united with, and he is the friend that you can proudly stand beside. While you were God's enemy, Christ died for you so that you wouldn't be a slave, so that you wouldn't be an enemy, but that you would become his friend. Faith is the covenantal seal of that friendship. Faith, which is a gift of the Holy Spirit. James 2.23 Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. A lot of you struggle with loneliness even if you have lots of friends. This world sometimes doesn't provide very good friends or even opportunity for friends. But we look not to the things of this world. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And, unf- and your faith in Jesus Christ provides for you an unfailing friend, the King of all kings, Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and reigning, your friend. Like Jonathan gave David his robe of royalty, you can give Jesus control of your life and trust him, believe in what he has done, and bow your knee and follow him. He promises, he promises that you will live in the shadow of his victory in abundant life and peace and in rest. And life is not going to be perfect, but the haze of this dying world will most certainly be lifted. Come to Jesus and live. Come to Jesus and have a friend like this world cannot give you. Father, we thank you. May you have emptied heaven for your sons and daughters, your friends on earth. Given to us your son. Filled us with your Holy Spirit. How awesome. And now we know that nothing in all creation can separate us from your love that we have through Christ. And we rejoice. Jesus, you know, Father, he is our perfect friend. But we're the bad friends. The forgetful friends, the unintentional friends. Lord, help us. We believe. Help our unbelief. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.